There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer and a broadcaster, and I'm your chief investigator of images. Delighted today. This is going to be a fun one, Art Detective listeners, because I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Jonathan Healy, who is, who has the wonderful title of Associate Professor of Social History at Oxford University. It's a very, very posh and important title, isn't it, John? It does sound very, very posh and important, but uh, I very rarely manage to get to work today to wearing matching socks. <laughs> it is more posh than I probably deserve, <laughs> in fairness. Matching shoes, I normally manage. Matching socks is always a bit of a push. That's good. I have been known to lecture in mismatched shoes. Oh, that's it's, good. So that's it's a particularly bad day when that happens. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're colleagues at the Department for Continuing Education. Right. We've known each other for a long time, but we're also friends on Twitter where you are <laughs> extremely, extremely funny and make me laugh at least five times a day. That's very, very kind. <laughs> and so I said, let's do a podcast. And you said, I want to do... Uh, a, a, a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what painting you wanted to do? I would like to uh, talk about The Fight Between Carnival and Lent by Peter Bruegel. Bruegel the Elder. Peasant Bruegel, if you will. Exactly. Peasant Bruegel, known as the painter of peasants. And as you have discovered today, not the only Bruegel. No, no. <laughs> I, was doing my, I was doing my Wikipedia research about 15 minutes ago and I found out that there's actually way more than one Bruegel. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Actually, I did know, really. You did, um, you did. And, and, and all good Oxford academics do use reference materials other than Wikipedia. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> all so, my lectures are based on Wikipedia, but don't tell anyone. You've just told everyone. <laughs> so there's Peter Bruegel the Elder. He is our starting point. But we mm. also have Peter Bruegel the Younger. Indeed. Who was one of his sons, who yeah. was a bit of a copycat and set up a school ah. to his father afterwards. And then there's Jan. Bruegel, who Indeed. is quite interesting and actually quite a creative and fascinating artist himself. But Bruegel the Elder is amazing. So he's a sort of a, a mould breaker. Yeah, yeah, they were an annoyingly talented uh, 16th and early 17th century family, sort of like the Kardashians, but with talent and, and skills and artistic ability and intelligence and things like that. But apart from that, just like the Kardashians. Just like the Kardashians, exactly. They, they even looked like the Kardashians. I, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure, sure that's true. I mean, images differ of, of the Kardashians, but in yeah. many of the ones I've seen, they look just like the Bruegels. <laughs> 
<laughs> Good grief. Uh, so we are do- we have chosen, well, you have chosen, the uh, Fight of Carnival in Lent. And I imagine this is because you are a militant social historian. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> I'm a very angry militant social historian, yes. Uh, I'm constantly waging war against people who talk about kings and battles boring. Yeah. Uh, not boring, that's, that's entirely unfair. I, some of my favourite kings are quite interesting. The great thing about this painting and the great thing about Bruegel's work is that it is full of life and it's full of social life, it's full of ordinary people. Um, There's nearly 200 people in this painting and I'm pretty sure none of them is a king or a celebrity or anything like that. They're, they're all kind of peasants. And I love the amount of everyday life, ordinary people. Um, you can see things like people working. You can see things like people canoodling in inns. Um, you can see people enjoying plays, playing music, all this kind of stuff. And it's a very kind of democratic kind of art, which is what I love so much about it. I did have a feeling you would pick something like this. And <laughs> and I have to say, I mean, I side with you completely because I'm a cultural historian. <laughs> and so, again, I get a bit fed up of hearing the endless tales of Henry VIII and uh, you know, all the same things that we're always we're, told about. We're going to get in trouble for this. We are. We are. <laughs> hey, it's, it's only between you and me, Jonathan. But yes, it is an amazing scene of the cross spectrum of society. And it is incredible I think and fascinating to modern viewers because this is painted was it 1559 mm, yes yeah, yeah so Bruegel himself is born around we think 1520 1530 mm. uh, we know he enters the guild between the ages of 21 and 26 we mm. can sort of guess when he was born mm. but we don't know for a fact there are bits written about him there's a whole biography written about yeah. him which is fascinating (laughs) and he is a really interesting character he moves around the one thing I love most about him and you'll appreciate this (laughs) like many Netherlandish artists he went to Italy yes so we're talking post Michelangelo post Leonardo the renaissance has happened but he goes to Italy and while everyone else is painting ruins and classical scenes he just sits there painting mountains and then he goes back (laughs) to more mountains he's like yeah I've done Italy it was boring (laughs) I want to paint some peasants yeah yeah man after my own heart peasants and mountains that's basically my my main interests. <laughs> but so it's the vibrancy of this that attracts you. Yes. But I imagine it's also because of the climate that is producing this sort mm. of what looks to be social unrest. Mm. Tell me a bit about the time. That well, I mean, made. the 16th century is a period of the reformation of the Christian church. So, I mean, there is a kind of obvious undertone to a lot of the art of this period of religious unrest, religious uncertainty. We're just a, a generation, a couple of generations away from Martin Luther and we're actually just only a few years away from the Great Revolt of the Netherlands, which was something which was, you know, literally happening right on on Bruegel's doorstep, uh, which was, you know, a large part of that was about a Protestant society trying to rebel against a very, very Catholic monarch, Philip II of Spain. There's a sort of wider relevance here, which is partly religious, but also very, very, very cultural, which is that the painting is about sort of popular custom which are sort of tied into religion. It's about Lent and it's about Shrove Tuesday, Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, as they call it in French. But it's also a period of very significant social upheaval. Um, The population of Europe is growing. This causes pressure on resources. Um, It causes pressure on food. There's various kind of, you know, cultural changes, which mean that the, the social elites are increasingly trying to regulate the lives of ordinary people in towns uh, in Europe, including in England. Um, kind of urban elites are actually, you know, in some places trying to stamp out the kind of disorder that you see in this painting. And that's partly religious, it's partly because they're influenced by Calvinism and the desire to 
reform the manners of the the horrible poor people. Um, but it's also partly because towns are growing, um, because the population is growing, because there's increasing problems of poverty, and poverty is represented in this painting, which is another reason I I think it's so fascinating. Yeah, that's what you did your research on, wasn't it? I on did. Poverty. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Go the poor. Well, I wrote about uh, about poor people um, engaging with the the state and sort of saying, well, I am poor and I should have poor relief because of all these kind of poor uh, conditions that I'm in. Um, but one of the really interesting things about this painting, from my point of view as a historian of the poor, is the depiction of poverty and the depiction of the poor and also the depiction of charity towards the poor. You know, so just to say something about the nature of the painting, because we should probably sort of describe what's in it, shouldn't That's we? That's it, I, I know. <laughs> I sh- I, in this internet age, I'm sure that and any listeners are sort of, you know, frantically Well, Googling the it. clever team at History here embed the images ah, well, into the podcast. Go. So if you do want to look at it, it will be alongside your podcast it's downloads. It's amazing what they can do these days. Magic. But the painting is a depiction of... Uh, it sort of does what it says in the title. It's a fight between Carnival and Lent. And Carnival is personified by a a rather large chap um, riding on a barrel <laughs> with a skewer of meat and wearing a pie for a hat. And if anyone says to me, oh, why do you love this painting? I say, well, it's impossible not to love a painting which has a guy with a pie hat. <laughs> um, <and> it- <laughs> there is, There are elements of Bosch coming through, aren't there? And yes. I know the comparisons are often made between Bruegel and Bosch, but it's yeah. very, very different, isn't it? Because yes. with Bruegel, everything has a meaning. And actually, mm. the meaning is quite accessible. You can tell what's going on here. Yes. There's a wonderful painting he does where every single character is a different proverb or a yes. different saying yeah, yeah, yeah. and that is amazing you can still <laughs> unpack all these yeah, yeah, yeah. these little folk stories that come through but you're right so yeah you've got the pie man pie yeah. hats man <laughs> um, and, and you say it's easy to unpack but I mean I, I've no idea what half of it means um, but, uh, so you've got the pie man on the left uh, and on the right um, he is fighting a battle with the personification of Lent and I think I'm right in saying this a woman Lent is normally a woman it's in uh, you know female dress of the period although it's not entirely clear it's not sure I've heard it described as a man yeah. But, I mean, it's it's almost one social norm too many to have yeah. the head of the well, Lenten yeah. procession dressed um, as a man, but we'll see. But that's certainly dressed as a nun. Yes, yes. And Lent is carrying a sort of pallet of, of fish, which she or he is jousting with Carnival with his kind of skewer of meat. I mean, it, it works in a kind of allegorical sense in that traditionally once you'd eaten all the meat of carnival then you you would move into lent and it was a period of fasting and a period of abstinence but actually these kind of mock battles did literally take Mm. place this was part of the festivity and usually it would end well almost always it would end with carnival being defeated possibly put on trial and then possibly you know given a mock execution and the symbolism is of course that you know it's the end of this period of exuberance and excess and you are now moving into a period of abstinence so it's that contrast um, which is depicted in in the painting and one little sort of nugget if you look at the top of the painting in the top left hand side on the carnival side there are trees which are bare and this of course represents the time of year this is the winter when the trees are bare and if you then move over to the right hand side which is the lent side there are a set of trees which are spouting buds Mm. and so it's a kind of movement in time as well and it's moving from one period of period of, of, of excess to a period of 
abstinence, which is also uh, representative of spring. Also, if you look on the left of the painting, there is a tavern. Mm -hmm. Taverns are where naughty things happen. And on the right, there is a church. And a church is, uh, you know, obviously symbolic of, of religion, but also the religious kind of, you know, element to, to let. So there's an awful lot going on. There's definitely a, a sort of split down the centre of this, mm. and um, you, you could see it as two processions. Yeah. So on the one hand, you've got the procession behind Mardi Gras, behind the, the fat Tuesday. Yes. The, 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 and actually, he's, he's interesting, because I think he's a butcher. He's got a butcher's knife around his yes. waist. And I think that all of the animals had to be slaughtered mm. in the run-up to Lent. And then butchers would actually go away mm. over the spring to find more cattle, so they yes. would actually yeah, leave yeah, yeah. the town. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's the sense in which the butcher is slaughtering the meat, they will feast. But as you say, it's split in half. And because mm. on the other side, on the right-hand side, it seems to be more pious and more sombre, mm. yeah, the it, characters that are coming yeah. out of the church. But there isn't a sense in which Bruegel is saying those people on the left are behaving awfully no. and really badly and those on the right are the pious, good no. Catholics, you could say. <laughs> There's a much more sort of bird's eye view of this, which seems to be trying to stay impartial, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Well, I think so. And, and I think the way Bruegel and I think the way uh, a lot of um, people at the time would have thought about this um, was that these are two sides to the human condition. And actually... <laughs> 16th century Europe was an incredibly ordered society. People knew their place and they were supposed to be deferent and, you know, things went, there was, you know, we talk about a great chain of being from, from God through the king or queen and through the kind of, you know, church hierarchy right down to, to peasants. And, th and this was represented in the family as well, where the father was supposed to be like a king in the mm. household. Um, oh, yeah, it's fascinating when he paints children because yes. he does a lot of paintings. Of he's, yes. he's got some of the first representations of children at play in particular. Yes, but it's amazing yeah. because he completely completely homogenises them. They're all mini adults yeah, yeah. and they're all playing with things like pig's bladders. They don't have actual toys. <laughs> no, but there's this wonderful sense in which children, life was short, child yeah. expectancy was low. And so actually you didn't idolise your children. You didn't put, look at them through rose-tinted spectacles. They were small adults yeah, yeah. who were below their parents and below the rest of society. Yeah. And eventually they'll they'll find their place. Yeah. But Bruegel seems to capture that as well, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, although that's kind of, that's something that historians have argued a mm. lot about. And, and, you know, there were historians who sort of said, well, children died all the time, so people didn't really mm. care about them. If you read people's diaries, they, they really did care. I'm sure they did care about them. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, the, the, the idea of adolescence was not something which was particularly well formed if, if it was formed at all in this period. Mm. So, you know, children in many ways were kind of seen as small adults. And you know, famously, if you look at a lot of paintings in this period, children are usually depicted in, in fairly adult clothes. But I wanted to just go back to this idea of the social order. Mm. And one of the great things about Carnival, one of the reasons historians like me find it so interesting, is that it is a period of misrule, specifically misrule. And it it's all about overturning the social order. For example, in the painting, if you look, um, I can't remember where, where they are now, but there is someone dressed as a bishop. Right. And this is uh, reflective of the tradition of... Well, we've now lost it. We've now lost the bishop. <laughs> there are 200 figures, but we're finding our way through. Them, but yeah, there's a bishop to yeah. show that it's sort of the subversion of yes. the church. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. What do you hold to this idea that in some ways a representation of the conflict between Protestants and Catholics that's taking place? Because that's one argument, isn't it? (laughs) That the left-hand side is Protestant, the right-hand side is Catholic. Catholics will pious and overzealous. And I, I mean, I love the idea that actually... This is awful, but you're like this. In the bottom right-hand corner there, mm. so you've got the procession of rich people coming out the main mm, entrance yeah. of the church, and then the poor are having to leave out the side with their own oh, chairs because yes, they yeah. didn't have their own chairs. But the, the idea that these people are being shown to be charitable yeah, yeah. because Lent was a time of giving alms, uh-huh. that actually everyone's taking advantage of it. So this woman has dragged out her child and her drowned husband's corpse mm. to get more pity, to mm. get more money yeah, from the people yeah. leaving church during the procession. So it's almost saying that that sort of um, overt piety, mm. it can be critiqued as well, that that way of life isn't a good necessarily an answer. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a kind of performative charitableness mm. about some of the way that, you know, these wealthy people are very much giving, you know, you, you know they, they, are, they are giving money to the poor in a very ostentatious way. Yeah. I mean, in this period, there is a huge amount of concern amongst kind of huffy middle class um, people about the fact that, you know, poor people are basically kind of, you know, taking them for a bit of a ride. Mm. You know, some of the debate about charitable almsgiving as a way of salvation, as a way of getting into heaven, it does centre on this. And, you know, one critique in Wittenberg, for example, the, the reformers in Luther's time um, tried to stop students begging because they didn't think begging was a very good way of distributing money to people who actually needed it because you gave money to the people who, who asked the most vociferously. Um, and there is a lot of concern in this period about poor people basically kind of, you know, having it up a little bit and, and you know, arms going to people who are not deserving. That said, um, if you look at the depiction of poverty in this 
painting. I mean, it's very much, you know, people with very obvious disabilities. Um, it's, you know, in the bottom right, it's someone who is able to drag out their husband's mm. corpse. Yeah, okay, they are performing something, but they're also a widow, and widows exactly. are absolutely central to, you know, the understanding of the period of the deserving poor. And, you know, there's a sick child in the bottom right. So I, I think we can overplay this kind of thing. I mean, I do like the idea that it's sort of satirising Protestants a little bit. And I say this because there is a strand of kind of Catholic satire against Protestantism in this period, which basically takes the idea of the world turned upside down, which is absolutely central to Carnival and the Carnivalesque, um, and says, Catholicism or traditional religion is the kind of ordered way of doing things. It's how we've always done it. And these horrible Protestants with their, <laughs> with their you know, news books and with their sermons in English and with their, you know, translations of the Bible and all this nonsense, what they are doing is they are turning the world upside down. And one of the lovely ironies of that being, and this is why I think the, the analogy works really well, is that those Protestants were often at the forefront of attacking carnival traditions because yes. they didn't believe in Lent. Exactly. Although, I mean, Luther did. The Many Calvinists of the, yeah, didn't Calvinists believe in, didn't. in Lent. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, I mean, this whole idea of the world, oh, the world turned topsy-turvy is, is, is the best way to make sense of images yes. like this by Bruegel. Yeah. And one of the things that's amazing about the bird's eye view that you get in a mm. Bruegel painting is that he is elevated, looking mm. down and, and casting this sort of satirical eye over the proceedings. Can you see it right at the very back of that window there? Yeah. There's a character that doesn't, he seems to be on the outside of the window, yeah, do, yeah. isn't doing any of the actions that the others are doing. Yeah. So it's possible that we, the viewer, are also being asked to take a sort of a, mm. a bird's eye view. But I think this idea of satire is really important at the time because what we have to remember is under the Reformation, art and culture changed so mm. radically as yeah. well because when you remove the patrons of monasteries, bishops, churches, mm. other sorts of art had to be provided. And there's this whole period, particularly in the Netherlands, where they're trying to work out what Protestant art can look like. Mm. It can't show the saints, it can't, um, it can still moralize, but should it be moralizing in a satirical way? Mm. And I think Bruegel is absolutely at the forefront. He's the first generation of those sorts of Protestant artists. Mm. But he, he does actually have a cardinal as one of his patrons. Yes. So he is serving the Catholic Church on the one hand. And on the other, he's big in with the humanists of mm. Antwerp. He's sort of in this circle where it's all about um, you know, breaking down the old statues, pulling down the old art. Mm. So I think that this is sort of a way of exploring society. Mm. But it's also a new sort of art, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the other thing about Bruegel's kind of immediate environment is, you know, working in Antwerp, which at this point is an incredibly vibrant an economically important city. Um, he is playing to a certain extent to an urban audience. And you know, many of these people will have actually had sort of backgrounds in the countryside. So there may be an element of, of nostalgia. But another theory is that there's an element of kind of, you know, looking down on the silly peasants from mm. the countryside. And you know, two things uh, that sort of strike you about that is there's a central figure in the painting, which is a, a kind of peasant couple right yeah. in the middle. And there's actually quite strong light on them, which is very interesting. And they're so being... they're just off centre by the side of the well, aren't they? Mm, yeah. It's a well, and then there's a fish, um, a fish preparation table. I'm not sure what the technical <laughs> term is, but I'm going to go with that. Um, and the light is very much shining on this this couple, and they're very ordinary kind of peasant couple, and they're being led away by someone who looks a bit like a, well, who is dressed like a traditional fool. And it may well be that there's a bit of symbolism there about the kind of you know the folly of the common people. Um, but also, she's got a lit lantern in the middle of the day, mm. which is another sign of folly. Yes. Uh, because yeah. why would you need a lit lantern? Yeah. So, so there's a whole suggestion on this side, certainly of folly. 
folly, but also of distrust because the yellow character behind the mm. butcher, the carnival character, um, yellow is traditionally a colour of deceit yes. in these images. And there is a sense in which people are being deceived. So in the bottom right where you had the widow and her deceased husband, in the bottom left, you've got two people casting dice. One mm. of them's got waffles yes. stuck to his head. <laughs> I know, you've got pie hat and yeah, waffle yeah. hats. This is my kind of land. Only in Belgium. <laughs> and he's casting uh, die with the devil. Yes. yes. So there's a sense in which that yeah. there's, you know, deceit and actually an immorality mm. going on on that side as well. Yes, and there's a lot of sexuality in there yeah. as well. We focused on the butcher. And if you look, and I know this is a PG-13 kind of <laughs> but if you look closely at the butcher, you will notice that he has a rather prominent codpiece. Yes. Um, and, the... and we're not averse to talking about the male, gen- <laughs> male and female genitalia on this podcast. Don't you worry, this is art history, my dear. Absolutely, there's a lot yeah. of them in art. There's, there, there's a lot of willies. I mean, this is partly a kind of trope about butchers who, of course, made sausages, which are inherently sexual. Um, butchers were um, often seen as quite sexual characters. Oh, um, yeah. But it's, uh, I, well, I don't know about your, your feelings Good about grief. butchers, but I can't get enough of them. Uh, yeah, um, they're the sexiest and... beasts. They really are the sexiest of men. And, you know, one of the traditions that you might come across in Carnival is a sort of 50-foot sausage being paraded through the um, town. Uh, There are often, you know, people might wear masks with very prominent long noses, which are a kind of phallic kind of thing. There's a really interesting tent. Um, I say that advisedly because there are very few tents which are genuinely really interesting. (laughs) This is one of the more interesting tents in Western art. Um, From the many. uh, Of the many, many, many tents. Our next book. Tents in art. Of Western art. This um, is a particularly interesting tent on the left hand side. Yeah. So it's just outside the inn, and it's a representation of a play called The Dirty Bride. Mm. Uh, and if you look um, just outside the tent, there is a, well, I mean, there's no other way of putting this, there is a dirty bride. Um, she is. <laughs> a nudie woman. Um, well, she's. Well, not, semi. No, she's, she's not. She's mucky. just. Yeah. yeah. And then she's being led there's astray. There's a nudie by a... person on a barrel further back as well. There there's is, some nice, yeah. nice sort of new characters. Um, my take on this is that this is a representation of carnival traditions of um, cross-dressing which is often a very uh, central part to uh, the kind of festivities around carnival and again this kind of plays on this idea of the social order being overturned one of the ways that you mocked someone who was theoretically overturning the social order was you might dress up as if it was a man and let's face it you know a lot of the most sort of influential kind of religious people in this period not all of them but a lot of them were men one of the ways that you would mock them is by by dressing up as them but dressed up as a woman And if you really wanted to hammer it home, then you would have them dressed as a bride and then they would marry someone. The satire here is, again, this kind of the idea that transvesticism um, and kind of what we might call kind of gender um, questionable marriages. um, These are ways that people at the time satirised the authorities. It's transgressing, isn't it? And it's where they're going to potentially go into the tent. Yes. And there will be this this consummation. Yes. But I mean, the idea that there are plays going on all over this because there's little ones outside different buildings mm. as well that you can identify. Yeah, this yeah. is a place of performance. I mean, even mm. now we have um, wagon plays, the mystery plays. We know mm. that Christianity had to be interpreted inside the sermon and inside the church, but it also got taken out onto the streets because it was so ubiquitous. Mm. So these are peasant versions of moralising stories Mm. and saints and sinners and all the rest of it. And Bruegel loves that. That's what he loves to paint in his art, doesn't he? Actually, the morality of a lot of these kind of peasant performances were very much kind of bought into the social order. They they, they weren't necessarily challenging it. And one of the really, and it's quite a subtle argument, one of the really interesting arguments about the importance 
importance of carnival is that what it does is it allows people in positions of um, you know, poverty and, and, and relative powerlessness to challenge specific figures who are in positions of power. But by doing that, it allows them to sort of get off steam and it humiliates certain people who have acted badly. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't actually challenge the social order itself. It's a form of quite conservative, actually, um, bloodletting or, or letting off of steam. And people use similar kind of terms at the time to describe this kind of thing. Um, there's, there's the physical bloodletting. I mean, yeah. with the sacrifice, there's this wonderful um, centrality to the composition where you've got the well in the middle. Mm. As you mentioned, there's the fish preparation yes. zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the, the slaughtering of the pig taking place on site. Yeah. And this is representing that the meat will be prepared and feasted upon on Mardi Gras, mm. but that the people will only have pretzels and muscles and herrings to live on during Lent. Mm. But yeah, like you say, like the volcano explodes and it's coming together in this composition mm. in that battle between the two figures. But at the heart of it is this well of purity mm. that it will all go back to something a bit more wholesome, something yes, a bit more, yeah. more more steady. And also, I suppose, as well, about the passing of the seasons, this idea that this is a seasonal activity that goes with yeah. the flow of human nature and nature itself. One of the things I find really interesting about um, this painting is, is the noise, uh, particularly on the left-hand side. And if you look at the, the performance of the, the play, The Dirty Wife, uh, the Dirty Bride, sorry. Um, there is a lady who is banging on some kind of kitchen implement. I think I'm not quite sure what it is. And um, what she's trying to do here, she's trying to create something called rough music, which is often a central part of these kind of, um, you know, sort of rituals of discordance. Uh, and often what you would have is you would have some kind of discordant thing happening, let's say a transvestite wedding or, um, you know, someone being mocked as a kind of fake bishop or something like that. And while they were in that sort of discordant position, Position, there would be the banging of the pots and the pans and it would make all this kind of horrible discordant noise. And then when they were sort of cast out of the town or when the, you know, the mock bishop was defrocked or something like that, or when carnival was put on trial and, and executed, then the rough music would stop. And if you look in the right-hand side of the picture, there are no musical instruments, um, there's no one banging anything. Um, it's a quieter scene. So I think it's very hard for us historians, particularly you know, looking at visual sources, to, to understand the sounds of the past mm. but I think noise would have been this is a bit ironic because we've just been sort of sat in this room while people are banging things outside <laughs> um, uh, but noise is absolutely central to the way that people you know marked carnival and then marked the transition to the harmony and the uh, you know the, the quietness and they would use that word the quietness quietness meant peace uh, of Lent uh, and I think that comes across in the painting as well absolutely I think the reason that Bruegel is so timeless and that everybody enjoys his, I think they really enjoyed they were very valued in his lifetime he was collected he was appreciated and it's because of the full set of senses that are aroused so you do get the sense of touch of smell of sight mm -hmm. and sound but I, I think what's also absolutely amazing about this one which I'm so glad you chose this one is because it's almost working like a comic book it's almost like yes. a temporal yeah. passage where you do have a sense in which time is moving from one side of the painting to the other and even the colour palette you go from these sorts of red hues and blues and yellows mm -hmm over to this darker shade of the of the church. And so I think it is as if time is unfolding before your eyes as well. Mm. So it's a, it's a magical piece. Absolutely. Do you, do you know, we have talked at length. <laughs> We've done our half hour, my dear. Have we? Oh, we well, fantastic. Have. And there's still so much to say. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to analyse the food in this is such <laughs> yes. fun. I've had such fun sort of choosing what I'm going to have for lunch <laughs> on the back of, 
I'm looking at a broiler. <laughs> yes, if you look very, very carefully, there's someone's holding a, a, an M&S sandwich. Oh, and that's yeah. me. That's mine. Yeah, that's got my name on it. Uh, it's been so good talking to Brilliant. you. Really, you really are on fun. Twitter, and your handle is. Uh, Social History Ox. Social History Ox. And he's so good to follow. Full of interesting information and (laughs) humour. I'm also on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Yanina Ramirez. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe by going to historyhit.com slash artdetective. We've got a big guest coming next week as well. Some exciting announcements to come. And you can also encourage the work that History Hit are doing by going to historyhit.tv. Fantastic new project, which we'll see... History Channel On Demand. You can dictate what you want to see on your screen. So uh, stay tuned. Lots of exciting things happening. Thanks again so much, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.